Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Stephen Vesruchka, who is faculty in the School of Public Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. He worked as an emergency physician for 30 years and also set up a teaching hospital in a remote district in Nepal where he supervised the training of Nepali doctors. His current work is in making better known what produces health in a population and why the United States has worse health outcomes than some 50 other nations, despite spending almost half of the world's health care bill. His book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World, has just been published by Rutledge. I welcome Stephen Bezruchka to Savage Minds. Your book is just so excellent in how you set up the paradigm about American healthcare. You begin with a dedication to all those who died of social murder or structural violence. Can you explain that dedication? So, um, social murder is a concept that began um, around 1850. Uh, Frederick Engels uh, was writing about um, poor people dying in, in England. And uh, and he said, you know, they died from the usual diseases like you've been describing. And he said, you know, it, it's it's the social conditions that are producing uh, these fatalities and uh, and is done by acquiescence of the people who run the country. And so he said it's murder uh, just as if there was a a weapon. Um, that caused this, you know, the a smoking gun. Structural violence is a a more modern term. You know, the term social murder has sort of been around for 150 years, but not used much. And structural violence uh, came into being uh, actually around 1969, when people looked at the economic structure of society that was killing people and you know behavioral violence is obvious there's a, uh, an assailant there's a, you know a gun a smoking gun and you can see the blood run out uh, and so you focus on that form of violence and how much of that and but the structural violence that is the violence due to the economic structure of society. That's what was in the original paper in 1969, uh, kills far, far, far more people. And, um, and there's no smoking gun. Now to try and estimate the amount of it, uh, I, you know, in, in, two, in uh, 2001, there was the 9-11 tragedy. 3,000 people died in, uh, in one day uh, in three separate uh, sort of events. And that, and that was behavioral violence. You, you saw it. Um, structural violence, rough estimates, uh, put about uh, one 9-11 happening every two hours continuously, just to sort of give it the scale that it needs. So that, but all these ideas, I think, are very hard to get people to consider. You know, we're schooled to think of what individual, what happened to individuals 
and it must be because of their personal behaviors or the behaviors of others, but that's a relatively small player. Your book begins with an interesting concept that I think uh, many Americans and even outside of America, people in the West are alienated from. I'm going to quote you here. You discuss the British epidemiologist Jeffrey Rose, of whom you note, quote, distinguish between sick individuals and sick populations in a seminal 1985 paper. He looked not at why some individuals had hypertension or high blood pressure, but at why some populations had widespread hypertension and others did not. Some of the highest blood pressures among adults were found among African-Americans in the United States, while some of the most consistently low blood pressures are found in Africans in Africa. What factors are producing such a distinct difference among populations so similar? End quote. You maintain that we don't ask the broader social questions, as you put it, because, as you state, poor health has become normalized. Now, growing up in the U.S. and in Canada, I was accustomed to hearing that African-Americans or African-Canadians have higher blood pressure. So we're made to believe that this is a somatic link, right? But in fact, what you maintain in your book is that there's something else happening. Could you discuss this for our listeners? So Africans have you know, low blood, you know, normal blood pressures, and African Americans, and I presume um, African Canadians. Though that's a things are a little different in Canada. You know, I I grew up in Toronto, and uh, and so I have the Canadian background as well as all the years spent here. Um, stress. Stress is, so I, I, I think in the book I write, stress is the 21st century tobacco. I started off by saying stress is the 21st century tobacco. And what I mean by that, and it relates to structural violence, as we have more and more inequality in society, we're under more and more stress. And, um, you know, we have all these conveniences, uh, you know, we can accomplish so much uh, by just doing mouse work and, uh, you know, uh, cellular phones and all of that technology. But somehow um, we are much more stressed than we used to be. And and the stress, you know, grow, uh, spending time in Nepal in the early 1970s, there was no word for stress. They then, uh, as they urbanized and they had uh, more dense populations and modern conveniences, then they borrowed the uh, the English word stress and they pronounced it e-stress, Malay stress lagio. And, um, and so why wasn't stress a part of Nepali rural life in the 1960s and 70s. Well, you had uh, work to do. It was mostly uh, farming, uh, uh, various forms uh, of farming to uh, grow enough food to survive. You had an extended family. They all lived together in a very tiny room. You know, I, I I spent a lot of time in those circumstances and life was hard, but everybody shared the same, the same hard work. 
and we didn't have hierarchies. But once a hierarchy arose, then somebody could say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm your king or master or lord, and uh, I want you to do things for me. And if you don't do them, uh, you're going to be punished. Well, punished in the uh, in the American sense is you're not going to have much money. You're going to be poor. And the word and the concept of poverty, this was kind of interesting. You know, I, I don't go into this in the in in the book, but it was essentially absent in Nepal. People didn't talk about being poor, though from a Western lifestyle they had nothing. But they didn't know what they didn't have. They didn't appreciate. You know, when I traveled there, if I had a camera that re represented more wealth than they would ever see in their lifetime. I, mean, I took pictures. I, on the other hand, I tried to keep it out of sight. Um, so once people began to see what others had that they didn't, then they felt poor. And, and that's stressful to feel uh, that you don't have what others have. So the 21st century tobacco. Well, in the United States, uh, about 15% of people smoke, and now they're mostly poor. You know, back when I, when I was a, a lot younger, everybody sort of smoked. But, uh, you know, the rich and the middle class have sort of uh, forsaken that habit. And, and so why do the poor smoke? Well, <laughs> you'd think they wouldn't because it costs money, but it's a stress reliever. What's another stress reliever? Well, we have over 100,000 opioid overdose deaths a year now in the United States. And we yeah. consume about three quarters of the world's opioids in the United States. Three quarters of all the production in the world. And why? Well, pain can pain comes in two varieties, physical pain and social pain. And both, of course, are uh, treated quite well by opioids. The amount of social pain in the United States is huge. And so people self-medicate. And yes, you know, you sort of blame the pharmaceutical companies for their uh, selling tactics for the uh, oxy drugs, but people, you know, they're not doing that anymore and people st are still dying because they're trying to relieve their pain for living in the United States and all the stress that it has. What do you mean when you say they're not doing that anymore? Well, uh, okay, so the uh, Sackler family and Purdue Pharma heavily advertised uh, opioid drugs, saying they were not addictive, starting, you know, I, I sort of noticed this in the early 1990s, there was a big push to get people, uh, you know, they, they said these weren't addictive when they knew that they, uh, that they were, it was just a, uh, a marketing strategy. And eventually, you know, they've, they've been taken to court, they've had to settle, 
the Sackler name has now been taken off a lot of buildings and foundations. And, and so they're no longer advertising the opioid drugs as being safe. But they're very effective. And so people still, you know, they can, what's happened is, the, you know, the you used to have to go into uh, uh, rather depressing parts of town to get your fix. But now you can have have the delivery Uberized. And, and there's a real huge network to connect people to opioids. A lot of people working within the FDA, eventually, when they retire, they go to Big Pharma. And so they're being nice to their future employers. And this is something that also plays into, unfortunately, what we've all been through these past two point whatever years with the lockdown, the follow up to that, the mask, no mask, the distancing, this, that meters, and then the eventual rollout of the vaccines. Now, could you talk about why you saw COVID-19 as that, as that moment to launch your, your book's thesis in a sense, because obviously you could have written this book a hundred years ago. Well, you're not a hundred, but just, you know, the, the inequality of, of wealth and medicine in the United States doesn't seem to bode well. You say in your book that the U S is funding an enormous amount of what is the world spending on healthcare. It is a global giant in spending. And yet we have the worst health outcomes. I believe you state compared to 50 other nations. We're like below them. Yes. So you know, the title of the book is inequality kills us all. That's the main point. And then COVID-19's health lessons for the world. So the basic statement is that economic inequality, income, wealth, however you want to put it, is the main perpetrator of poor health. And why is that? Well, as I was talking about stress, inequality produces a tremendous amount of stress in society. And because, you know, the, however you measure it, especially during the pandemic, there's been a huge increase in uh, income and wealth inequality. And, uh, you know, we, we can call it pandemic profiteering. Kills us. So how does inequality kill? Well, it kills by creating a stressful society and we succumb in a variety of different ways that we all suffer from. Yes, there are 100,000 overdose deaths, but there are in the United States uh, about 3 million deaths a year of which um, heart disease and cancer take up about half of those. And if we eliminated heart disease and cancer in the United States as a cause of death, we still wouldn't be the healthiest country in the world. Something has happened in the United States that it's that there are now, uh, depending on whose numbers you use, 50 other countries where people have longer lives and those longer lives are healthier. You know, you're, you're in Italy and, uh, 
I just want to look at my Health Olympics. Italy is number 10 in the ranking of uh, using the uh, United Nations Human Development Report uh, published this year with the data for 2021. In that report, the United States is 44th. Now, the UN doesn't include Taiwan and a variety of other uh, countries. So if we go to World Health Organization or even the American CIA World Rankings website, we fall down to 50th to 60th. This is the richest, most powerful country in world history that spends half of the health care bill, half of all the money spent for health care in the world. That's, you see, people, people in this country, um, they conflate the terms health and health care. We say we access health, pay for health, get health, insure health. We do nothing of the kind. It's health care. We access health care, pay for health care, insure health care. But we assume that it's health care that produces health. And it can't be true since here we are spending half of the world's health care bill and 50 countries have longer, healthier lives than we do. So I mentioned Italy, where you are, is number 10. Canada, where I grew up, is number 13. Number one is Japan. Now, mm -hmm. Japan has been the longest lived country since 1978, according to pretty well all the data you can find. What, so I've spent some time in Japan and um, I also looked at data in Japan and three times as many men smoke cigarettes in Japan as in the United States. So if I told you that's the reason Japan's so healthy, uh, they all smoke, you know, you'd be wise to uh, not air this podcast. But something is going on that allows Japan to have a behavior that we know is bad for you uh, that, uh, that doesn't harm them. It harms smokers in Japan, but not as much as in the United States. So what might that be? What characterizes Japan society? And when I'm talking to people, I, I sort of quip, uh, and, and during the lockdown, uh, there hasn't been, and this may not have been true, but before the lockdown, did you ever see a lone Japanese tourist? They're always together. Do you ever see a lone American tourist? All the time. They have this concept of social harmony or wa. And, you know, it, it's the way to, to, to uh, treat social murder or structural violence. The having friends and support and family is a very, very good medicine, so to speak. It, it, you know, there's much less structural violence and everything else. So I said inequality kills us all. And I, I mean that for the United States, but also many other places in the world. That is, if take the, the oldest old person at any one time, never in the United States, usually in Japan, 
well, Japan's the healthiest country in the world, at least in terms of lifespan. If inequality wasn't killing Americans, every now and then you would hope that one of them would be the oldest old person around. Never happens. So all of these arguments are kind of difficult to make because they sort of fly in the face of what we think of uh, produces health, you know, uh, diet and exercise and not smoking, you know, the usual behavioral things. Yes, they're important, but not as important as the as the hierarchical structure of society that creates all the stress that does us in. So that's one point in the book, inequality kills. The other point in the book is early life lasts a lifetime. That is for you and I are the conditions from, um, I, use, I use the term, as we go from the erection to the resurrection, it's the first thousand days after conception when roughly half of our health as adults is programmed. So healthier societies do something in the early part of life. And, and what do they do? Well, let's take some examples. There are only two countries in the world that don't give a working woman who's pregnant paid time off after she has her baby. One is, of course, the United States, and the other is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia only two countries in the world with populations of a million or more who don't give paid maternity leave as a national policy. Engels' work on the history of the family private property in the state, where he notes the issues directly related. I mean, that book is probably the most important feminist tractus out there because he talks about the role of women and the fact that who was asked to lock down? Well, in air quotes, everyone. In reality, the real people who got saddled with having to do homeschooling, having to somehow break this time-space continuum, figure out how to do your full-time job, long distance, through a computer, take care of kids, feed, clean. Every how are you supposed to do this? You know, There was no measures made. All of these politicians just said, it was like watching an episode of my, you know, of I Dream of Genie or something, where suddenly people were expected to fix time, multiply tasks within that same amount of time. And it was generally the poor and women who paid that price. You're talking about the experience in countries in Europe. And, uh, and I see what happened in the United States. And it's a much greater degree of um, societal dysfunction, malfunction here than it was in Europe. Uh, but, you know, it, it, there was much more government support, not adequate. Uh, essential workers really uh, had it much more difficult. Um, but things were a lot worse here in the United States. And we can look at, for example, track life expectancy in 2019, 2020, and 2021. The European countries saw maybe a little decline from 19 to, uh, 2019 
to 2020, but not much after that. The United States just fell in, in over the entire period, and it lost seven life expectancy years from 2019 to, two, to the end of 2021. You know, that's that's a huge health hit. I mean, that, like I said, if we eradicated uh, heart disease, cancer, and COVID, we still wouldn't be the healthiest country in the world. And that's not true in any of the European countries. So, yes, it was pretty bad in Europe, but it was far, far worse here. What is the current life expectancy in the U.S. now? So according to, uh, in 2021, it was 70, a little less than 77 years, 76 point, uh, to be exact, 77, well, it depends, the UN 77.2, uh, the CDC, the our National Center for Vital Statistics, puts it a little lower, about 76.8 or 9. The numbers vary a, a tiny bit, um, to, but I've been using the UN, the United Nations numbers uh, for 25 years, and, uh, and so that's what I stand by. But the difference is huge. And, you know, I'm, uh, when, I, when I give talks and I can show visuals, then it's really remarkable how stark the difference is. And you look at mortality rates. I mean, for example, uh, let me pose this question. I think it's in the book somewhere. Uh, let's take adult mortality and the probability of a 15 year old dying before reaching age 60. And let's just compare the United States for a 15-year-old girl and a 15-year-old girl in Sri Lanka. Which 15-year-old girl is more likely to be alive at age 60, the American girl or the Sri Lankan? I would say the Sri Lankan, even though I've read the book. Yeah, I know this from India. You people, you go to India and you see poverty, but you see incredible health amongst the general population compared to the U.S. Nepal has a longer lifespan than India. That wasn't true 30, 40 years ago, but something has happened. Um, and I, and I uh, rewind all this back to colonialism. That is, Nepal was never colonized and India was. And colonized countries were mostly exploited by the British Empire or whoever were the colonizers, you know, the Dutch. Uh, you can look at the history of colonization all around the world and explain the 35-year gap in life expectancy using UN data from Chad at 53 years up to Japan at 84.8 years. That's huge. You know, that huge gap, and you can explain most of that by colonial exploitation. And then there were the countries that were never colonized. So a country like Nepal, um, you know, Japan, but that's 
that's a that's another story. Japan is very special um, for a variety of reasons. And I go into Japan. I describe the Japanese situation in the in the book. Think about it. Japan was destroyed at the end of the Second World War. And the United States occupied Japan. Well, other powers too. And they put in place policies that are, that are, that were the most rapid decline in mortality ever seen on the planet. And what were those policies? Well, Japan was Article uh, 9 in the Constitution said Japan shall never wage war. They will, uh, that's written into their Constitution. They have to resolve disputes peacefully. They had another clause, Article 23, saying that the Japanese government was responsible for the health of the people. And another, and they had another clause on well, quite a few clauses that basically Japan was a very hierarchical society and they and they collapsed the hierarchy and uh, and and changed the political structure of society so that by 1978 its life expectancy was the longest in the world and it continues in that position today. So Colonial histories are, are very important. In colonized countries, you had in the Caribbean, in India especially as well, you had a sugar trade, and that directly affected the diets of these countries. So in places like Morocco and India, you have very high rates of diabetes. And this can be traced back to the fact that you had colonization of these countries, India far earlier, around the 1790s, you had a push by the British to import sugar following um, a need to end slavery in the region. Now, the relationship, I agree with you, is there. But when I was saying about the general health of India compared to the United States, obviously, you go outside of any train station in India and you'll see the Dalits living not even in covered plastic spaces or tin space. No, they'll just be living on the sidewalk. You will find feces on the footpaths. And these are very destitute situations. But I was thinking of the overall population. India is a huge country. And for a country without socialized medicine per se, you find a lot of people when they have an ailment, they are able to go to a public hospital and there is a certain practice. And I know this from my own family members who will give pro bono medical advice and help. So the Ayurvedic practices there have been very proactive in solving what in American dentistry is called preventative dentistry, right? So the paradox is you come to Italy, most Italians don't use dental floss, okay? This is like, what? And Americans have this uh, paradox about our health system. We have better dental hygiene than we do physical hygiene because we have this notion in dentistry. My father was a periodontist. So this idea of preventative dentistry was already implanted in the US by the 60s and 70s. But we don't have that same proactive measure within our social thinking about our bodies. So I'm wondering if you could give an example for our listeners about how you saw medicine being better orchestrated in other countries where you've worked, as opposed to the US, where the general go to might be a, a physician writing up a prescription instead of advocating something more proactive. So that brings up the issue of social medicine. If what I've been saying about 
inequality killing us and early life lasting a lifetime. What does what does medical care do? Let's you know, I, I worked clinically as a doctor, as an emergency doctor for 30 years. I set up a, uh, a remote district hospital in Nepal as a teaching hospital for Nepali doctors and supervised them. I've worked in Canada um, practicing medicine as well. So I have a variety of experiences. And it was through those that I came to see no matter how configured, how little medical care does. And, you know, the United States being a prime example, spending so much and, and not having uh, much of a, of a long life. That said, um, social medicine is, it, it's a term that's, well, it goes back to uh, Jeffrey Rose, whom you mentioned. You know, what creates a sick population as opposed to a sick individual? And, you know, the last, if we take Jeffrey Rose's book, and the quote is in the book, is in the book as well. Uh, let me just uh, dig it up because the last paragraph of uh, Jeffrey Rose's book, The Strategy of uh, Preventive Medicine, is the he ends his book, The Strategy of Preventive Medicine, with this paragraph. The primary determinants of disease are mainly economic and social, and therefore its remedies must also be economic and social. Medicine and politics cannot and should not be kept apart. I can't think of a more powerful paragraph that speaks to the need for politics to create the social circumstances so people can be healthy. And yes, uh, you know, diet is, uh, is, is important, but I fall back on the idea that, um, again, I, I learned a lot from Japan and I had, you know, I, Okinawa used to be the healthiest prefecture in Japan. And I read that the diet in Okinawa was pork fat and noodles. Well, I went to Okinawa, you know, I always go to the places that I that I need to learn from. And I went to the markets and it was full of slabs of pork fat. I went to I, I had dinner in, in a Okinawan family home, pork fat and noodles, just as I had I had read. The difference is, so we would not think that's very healthy, pork fat and noodles. However, they're, they have a saying, hari hachibu, stop eating when you're 80% full. In other words, don't eat too much. I, I think, you know, yes, sugar is bad for you. Um, you know, too much fat is bad for you. Uh, all of these things contribute, but under the right social circumstances, such as we have in Japan, diet isn't as important as we think. I mean, I was a vegan for years. I, I had to go and look at all of the things that I believed, you know, I exercise, well, I still exercise, you know, but I, I, I came to see that the political factors that were 
were the most important. And so what does that mean, political factors? Well, if inequality is, if, is bad for you, we need to create a society with less income and wealth inequality. If early life is important, we need to put in place the policies that support early life. Like I mentioned, paid leave, uh, free childcare. You know, and so you spent some time in Quebec. You know, in, in Quebec, uh, childcare used to be $5 a day. Now it's $8 a day. Now it's a bit of a sliding scale, but you know, the Quebec government has put in place very good policies for supporting early life. And, and, and other, other provinces in Canada do the same. You know, I, I live in Seattle and if we, in the 49th parallel, the, you know, the border between uh, Canada, well, Washington and British Columbia is a huge health divide. That is, if you draw a map of, there's a map in the book of U.S. County life expectancy. If we extended that in in the western part to British Columbia, the life expectancy the life expectancy there is much higher. So something happens, you know, in in different countries, diets are not that much different, but other social factors are, and they create the huge differences in in health outcomes. Again, that's a tough idea to try and get people to believe because, you know, most of us think it's healthcare, diet, and and those factors that affect health. Yes, they're important, but just not that important. Can you go into a notion that you set up in your book in the seventh chapter, which you referred to earlier about stress? You talk about the Harvard physiologist, Walter Cannon, who portrayed the fight or flight response. Stress is something that we know is related to the industrial era, that now in the post-industrial era, people are working more than ever. Wasn't that the myth in the 1990s that the internet would liberate us from working so many hours? From my own personal experience, I work more, not fewer hours. And I don't think I'm an anomaly in this. Can you discuss that relationship, that balance of life that we are losing between personal off time and the fact that many of us, and I mean the professional class as well, and I would argue that we have to also make adjustments for what we call the working class today, because the working class is no longer the Pittsburgh steel worker. The working class today are often many educated people working from their sofas, even during lockdown, who are unable to take breaks because the productivity required of them means that they are enslaved to those laptops. Yes. Um, you know, we in the digital universe, all of our activity is being marked, is being monitored. So, you know, surveillance capitalism is you know, that Joshana Zuboff coined the term, uh, we are being followed everywhere and our devices are doing that. And, you know, you are supposed to be, well, 
productivity, that is the amount of material you produce per worker, has been rising steadily since, uh, well, for the last hundred years. Wages used to keep in tandem with, um, with productivity until somewhere in the early 1970s when productivity kept on rising and wages plateaued. So this created, and, and this was true especially in the United States, but elsewhere increasingly now. So what did we do? What did workers do in, in many strata to cope with the fact that they no longer made more money? Well, first of all, women entered the workforce and they had to provide for the family. We, um, we borrowed against credit card debt and we mortgaged the house to pay our salaries. Basically, uh, it sounds crazy, but because you know we had to buy all the stuff that we were that was being sold to us, and so we basically borrowed our salaries to consume more stuff that was very stressful and ended up. You're listening um, to Savage Minds, killing us. and we hope you're enjoying the show. That's a, that's a tough concept we that accept any money from corporate um, or commercial sponsors and modern society, you know, just like you now. Back I'm to a mouse show. worker now. I mean, I move this road across across the screen, uh, but I teach. And so I go into an active learning classroom uh, to do that. And I give talks and things like that. I'm really privileged to be able to do that. And I have enough money um that i don't have to borrow to pay my salary but that's not true for the bulk of american workers student debt is a, is a trillion and a half dollars in in italy you know when you go to medical school it's free and you might and you probably get a stipend here uh you know a, a medical student will graduate with uh, half a million dollars in debt and uh, my students, the undergraduates, others, they have huge debts before they graduate. And so what do they do? They got to try and pay off those debts. And, and so they, they're on the work treadmill. It's um, not very good for them. And that fits into the opioid crisis as well. Because one thing that a lot of Americans are unaware of, and I think our European and Australian listeners as well, New Zealand, sorry, would um, maybe not be aware of, is that it is not illegal. <laughs> this is really blowing my mind. But just like we need campaign finance reform in the U.S. around all elections, which really gutted Hillary Clinton's career in the early 90s when she suggested that as first lady, we also don't have... A, a system that demonetizes conflicts of interest. Let me explain. The opioid crisis grew in large part because the representatives of Big Pharma were whining and dining doctors. And as you just noted, uh, medical students are graduating with immense debt. A lot of foreigners think Americans are just wealthy and can pay their way through these schools. No, you have even middle-class Americans cannot afford the prohibitive costs 
of medical school, where in the EU, medical school tends to be, if not free, there's a paltry sum to pay of a hundred or a few hundred euro a year. So you don't have that kind of pressure to being put upon doctors to incentivize them writing out scripts for Oxycontin, for instance, or Vicodin. And that was happening. And it was happening even before this current opioid crisis. I know because my own father became a Vicodin addict as a practitioner. And I saw this as a child. My my errands as a child would be to go to the pharmacy and pick up prescriptions of Vicodin. I just remember this and from the age of nine. So I think that what a lot of people don't understand is that this is very much a class issue, but it's not the class issue that Marx and Engels were writing about because the industrial age class was very different than the panorama we're looking at. Like you, I, I taught at NYU in the 1990s throughout and the early knots. And I had more and more students as we went towards 2000, more and more students coming to me to write letters of recommendation for, I kid you not, unpaid internships. Now, how are you supposed to live in New York City where even as a renter in a flat crammed full of, of cohorts who were similarly trying to struggle their way through, you were lucky if you were paying five, six hundred a month. How are you supposed to survive in New York City with a year's job, six month job of no income? And this is something facing what used to be called the professional class. But I would argue that these are working class folks as well, because the difference between class in the 19th century tended to be how far deep you were in the mine pit. Today, it's not at all that. It's not the rosy faced banker with the black arm protector so they don't ink up their beautiful white sleeve. What's my experience? Um, here I am at, at the University of Washington in Seattle. There are um, it's hard to count, but uh, uh, maybe 500 homeless students attending the University of Washington. The libraries are now open 24 hours a day because, you know, they live in their cars. They uh, live in tents, you know, by the University Bridge when I, and it's not there right now, but there was always a tent, a couple of tents where students stayed and then went to classes and there are other places as well so think about it um a, a few hundred maybe 500 homeless students at you know one of the top universities and various rankings certainly in the united states and and around the world and we and and students live in their cars under the i-5 bridge that's another place so it's a you know this is a travesty and the number you know seattle is has a a huge homeless population uh i'm going down to la to visit a daughter and son-in-law tomorrow and uh there's huge population down there the numbers of unhoused in this country are a million or more and for the richest most powerful country in world history this is an absolute travesty. So yes, um, so how do, how do medical students cope in this country? Well, they take out these huge loans and then they 
choose high paying specialties. We have a very strong specialist focus in this country and the hardest residency training program to get into is dermatology. Why would that be? Well, dermatologists keep bankers hours, people pay cash, they uh, do, uh, you know, Botox injections and uh, uh, a few things like that. What studies show, so I said, if you look at all of medical care, it's hard to make a case that it does something for uh, improving health. If we dissect medical care into uh, primary medical care, what family doctors do, GPs in, in the UK, uh, pediatricians, uh, there's a, a strong benefit that can be shown that a focus on primary care does improve health. A specialist focus does not. So why would specialists not, not uh, do, why would their efforts be compromised producing health? Well, as you said, you know, we, they would write prescriptions for opioids. They would uh, do expensive procedures. They would, you know, if uh, people want to become, a, uh, say, uh, a gastro, uh, a, a, a gastroenterologist, you know, a, a, a doctor who specializes on the gut. Why is that? Well, we preach that everybody should have a colonoscopy every few years in this country, and they cost mm -hmm. five to ten thousand dollars a pop. It's like you had a a, a five thousand or ten thousand dollar bill in your colon and the gastroenterologist has to put a scope out there and fish it out and and uh, you know spend it on whatever uh, vacation uh, she has coming to her and then five years later the bill is back there to be pulled out again i mean that's what specialty medicine is like and many studies show it doesn't do much your book basically points out the primary role of politics in shaping health. How can political issues be more important, in fact? Because you have this dichotomy that's been set up between medical care and personal behaviors. Is that the only game in town? So, Jeffrey Rose, medicine and politics cannot and should not be kept apart. So, what do I mean by politics? Well, Politics, uh, there's a variety of definitions. I think I quote some in the book, but uh, politics is how we decide to structure society. Now, earlier you mentioned neoliberalism. Somewhere in the mid-1970s, we decided that we should uh, adopt policies of neoliberalism. And what does that mean? We should use the so-called free market to provide, to justify uh, a variety of services, and we should decrease taxes on the rich and government spending. And, you know, Reagan said the problem uh, with, uh, it, the problem is, is the government, not not something else. And uh, Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. I mean, 
they were big proponents of let market forces rule. And what did that do? Well, basically, we started having increasing inequality at a huge pace and our health started to decline compared to other countries and now absolutely for the last five years or so. So how did we decide to adopt neoliberal policies? Well, we voted politicians who who basically did that. You know, Reagan and Reaganomics, let's uh, let's give as much as we can to the rich and they'll invest it and it will trickle down to us. Uh, Bush the first, he uh, he continued those policies. Uh, then Clinton came in and what did Clinton do? Well, he separated, you know, the um, finance, finance and uh, and uh, uh, speculative banking, the Glass-Steagall Act, he broke that apart. So now banks could uh, really uh, get into speculative um, mechanisms. Along came uh, uh, Bush the second, and after 9-11, I mean, we just had, uh, well, talk about uh, a huge change in security in this country uh, that had huge ramifications. And I talked about it, we put that in place for because of 3,000 deaths. And here we have now a million one hundred COVID deaths in the United States, more than any other country in the world. Have we learned any lessons from that? No. What should we have learned from COVID? Well, many studies, and I mentioned some of them in the, uh, in the book, uh, at the state level, more deaths occurred in more unequal states. That's within the United States. Among countries, more income inequality was associated in a study of 84 countries, worse COVID outcomes. Why? Why does inequality, uh, you know, why does inequality have these strong effects on, on deaths from COVID? Well, basically, you need to have a trusting society. And the more inequality there is in a society, the less trust in the government, the less trust in each other, the less cooperation. Um, and that doesn't bode well. So it all boils down to stress. Now, <laughs> you know, we, we respond, we respond to these stresses with ways that are really uh, very harmful for us. And the worst, the, the other thing that's really important is the socioeconomic gradient in health. That is, poorer people have poorer health. And that's true across the board. And what income inequality does is make the gradient between poorer people having poorer health and richer people having better health steeper and and that works through many different mechanisms i use the example in the book of uh, uh, survival on the titanic remember the when the when the uh, great ship sunk 
uh, if you looked at who survived, if you had a first class ticket, 60% survived. If you had a second class ticket, 40% survived. If you were third class or crew, 25% survived. So the class distinction is there pretty well everywhere in everywhere you look, you know, the, 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 the lesson from the Titanic is always travel first class. Better still, don't have those class distinctions. But what you're saying, some Americans might attribute to, well, if wealth makes healthcare better, then why can't we just continue as we're doing? Even though the Affordable Care Act was a band-aid on, a, on what I call a sucking chest wound. We didn't really have change in how medicine is practiced in the U.S. That sort of, in fact, was a boon to the insurance industry, giving them guaranteed clients, right? But once again, uh, focusing on, okay, the United States doesn't have universal health care or Medicare for all. And so the natural tendency uh, among progressives is to say, yes, let's have universal health care or Medicare for all. And uh, that's going to, and then let's see what that does. Well, the European experience where everywhere there is Medicare for, there's universal health care, we still have the health inequalities. It didn't do away with what you saw on the Titanic. So, no matter what, yes, the United States should have universal health care. I'm all for that. But we can't expect it to do much for improving for improving our health. We've got to look elsewhere. And the elsewhere is to decrease the gap between the rich and the poor by increased taxation. Let's have a wealth tax. Let's have a progressive income tax. You know, the if you take in the United States combined federal, state, and local taxes, the richest uh, 400 peoples pay a smaller rate of tax than anybody else in this country when you combine all those taxes. Washington state does not have a, an income tax. It has a, stale, a sales tax. Sales taxes are regressive. They, they mostly um, fall on, on, on the poor who have to spend an increasing proportion. Now, back in the early, another argument I make in the book is that in the early 1950s, although we didn't have as long lives, our life expectancy was one of the highest in the world. We were in the top five or 10 countries then. During that time, the highest marginal tax rate was 91% throughout the 1950s. That is, if you made a million dollars and you made an extra dollar, 91 cents went to the government. And what did the government do with that money? Well, they spent it on a variety of social programs back then. And it was the poorest fifth that saw the greatest increase in income during the 1950s and 60s. Now it's only the uh, the top 1% or 0.1% that are seeing those. So the kind of policies we need to put in place are the ones we used to have when we were one of the healthiest countries in the world. 
I, I sometimes show a picture of the front page of the New York Times in, 19, oh, I think it was April 14th, 1942. It's, the lead headline is $25,000 income limit asked by president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposed a maximum wage in 1942, 100% tax on all incomes above $25,000. That's about $450,000 today, and many of us could live on that if we had to. I mean, that's quite reasonable. Now, that didn't pass. A 94% tax passed in 1944, that was raised to 19 to 96% in 1946, and then it was dropped down to 91% in the 1950s. So we should embrace taxation. You know, um, you know, tax rates. You know, Sweden, for example, has high tax rates, and uh, and why? Well, the government spends it on the people. We know we talked about uh, maternity leave in Sweden. You have to take 444 days of paid maternity paternity leave at your full pay, and and if the and the father has to take 13 weeks. In the second year uh, after 444 days. Uh, you can take more paid leave at a 70% pay rate. And then in your child's third year, you can put your child in a Swedish government run daycare center that's free. And what are the requirements to work in a Swedish government daycare center? You have to have an advanced degree in play. Because what's daycare about? It's all about socializing the kid. And you want experts for that. Here in the United States, people who work in daycare work for a minimum wage, if that. So those are the kind of political choices that we have to make in the United States. And I would venture similar ones throughout the rest of the world. Decrease inequality and spend it on early life. You know, Sweden spends more government money on the first year of life than in any subsequent year. And I have I have figures for other European countries as well. Where does the United States spend its money? Well, in uh, uh, special ed remedial education in, in later years. That's the wrong time to get much, um, much effective policies for health. So it really is, those are really political choices, but Americans don't see it that way. You know, they, they are stuck not recognizing the political nature of, of health production. I'm going to jump to your afterword of the book. You write, today we live in a surrealistic world. People who have already had COVID-19 get reinfected, as do those who have had the vaccine and then been boosted. This pandemic is not behaving as would be expected from studies of other viral contagions. And then you write, why is there such controversy? Is it different from that regarding the sun rather than the earth as a center of the solar system? 
recall that a quarter of U.S. adults believe the sun orbits the Earth. Ironic, because last week I tweeted sarcastically about heliocentrism versus geocentrism as this paradigmatic pushback. And we've been seeing it in over the past 20 years. We've seen a pushback to science directly in measure to leftist social movements. I work on many subjects aside from COVID and lockdown and so forth that has occupied my life recently. But I also work on the gender identity debate where now because of the ideological spin that somehow magically humans are suddenly no longer sexually dimorphic, that now sex can be mutable, that sex is not actually somatic, that sex is in the brain, this is the new ideology, and that gender is between the legs. We're seeing a whole revisionism of science and what many, and myself included, claim to be an undoing of all of what the Enlightenment advanced. And I find this quite dangerous because we really do need science. Science is not our enemy, but the minute we start to spin it and big pharma it, then we're losing touch with what is important. So I guess I ask in your afterward, you pose some very interesting questions about also the pandemicine as a possible sequel, you write, to the Anthropocene. What do you see as a way that we can push back on this both as individuals and as a collective in terms of writing our representatives, our senators, our parliamentarians. <laughs> That's a tall order. Um, you know, the, the, the rise of, uh, there's a lot of social fragmentation going on and the left is not as very at good, very good at integrating a, a lot of new ideas. Um, you know, my students now uh they they have they identify by their pronouns and yes this speaks to a a variety of diversity issues but it doesn't get us we lose focus on the basic ideas of how society needs to be structured you know intersectionality uh all of those issues they can be divisive or they can help unify. And I think uh, the gender sex uh, issues, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somebody struggling to try and keep up with youthful ideas and uh, sometimes I fail. But not all useful ideas are great ideas. That's another problem. We have this notion in the West, and this has been written about quite a bit by a wonderful Indian philosopher, Ashish Nandi, but this notion that progress is teleological, that we start at A, we head to Z. Now, we don't go from A to Z very easily because it's a fiction. And the idea that a 16-year-old suggests something means that we should follow it is anathema to logic. Who is to say that because someone is younger, they know more? And in fact, I would say that the older ways of society being structured amongst a panorama of involvement from the young to the elderly, where the elderly have the ear of the society, but they are the ones that hold a bit more power because they are able to see what has worked in the past and what has not. Hence, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm absolutely convinced that the ideas of identity around gender 
are anything but harmful, especially when you see what is happening in California and Texas and many other states where men who identify as women are being placed in women's prisons, where you see the upending of female sports because men want to get a scholarship to a university. Of course, who's not going to try and play the system? And this is not new. And people say, oh, but men wouldn't just, yes, they would. In England, the ministry that oversees the prison system has noted a steep increase in men identifying as women. Why? Because they have access to women. They have nicer jail cells, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of solving the problem of male violence, we are being told, women, that it's all in our heads, that we should be kind to male rapists, et cetera, and be inclusive of them. So this ideology coming from younger generations is not currently at all progressive. In fact, it's quite dangerous. And the paradox here is that it's the right that is saving women's rights today, both in the U.S. and Canada. In Canada, it's quite worse, uh, the situation. Many feminists are calling Canada Tranada because of the fact that women are not even being considered. You've had women raped in prison who are being called turfs who are being derided. Uh, you had a woman kicked out of a, a, a shelter because she didn't want a man sleeping next to her. This kind of stuff is happening. So I, I would push back on the idea that because the younger generation suggests something, that it's necessarily better. And I would say the inverse, because uh, uh, you say something, and you are certainly not a young chicken here. I wouldn't say, because you say it, we should listen to you because you have gray hair. I would say, we need to look at the merits of argument, which is what the scientific method is also based on, no? Sure. I mean, I, 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 I don't really have anything to, to counter what you said. You know, these ideas uh, distract us from what I think is what you, you talked about prisons. So uh, United, United States has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. That is almost 1% of Americans are behind bars. If you're African American man age 20 to 30, that's about 10% of them are behind bars. So we house roughly a quarter of the world's prisoners. We're only 5% of the world's population. There's something wrong there. And so, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, we're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's not get into the pursuit, but we're, uh, we're entitled to life, but it's not a long life. You know, 50 countries, people have longer lives. Liberty is totally an illusion with one in a hundred Americans behind bars. So we need to face up to some of these ideas and recognize the prison industrial complex started again in the 1970s as a way to put the poor behind bars, punishing the poor. And because, and you know, are corporate criminals in jail? No way. Uh, you know, it's, it's only the, uh, the poor and marginalized people in jail. And so uh, we need to change our system of justice and put corporate criminals in jail and not lock up people for minor offenses such as possession of drugs.